You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. the Archaeology and Ale podcast, a free monthly public archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. The talks take place at the Red Deer, a popular pub on Pitt Street in Sheffield near the Archaeology Department. It is a busy place, so there might be some background noise in our recording. This month, our guest speaker is Leanne Baldridge from Museum Sheffield. And they will be speaking about witchcraft, the best bits. So I think we'll officially start, finally. So um, I'm here to talk to you today about the fascinating, weird, wonderful, bizarre, disgusting, strange, and just bloody great world of witchcraft and the material culture that we find associated with it. So here's who I am. Uh, Cat enthusiast is the most important one in there, so please get that on my CV. So... For years, people have been fascinated by, perhaps even a little obsessed, with all things involving the magic, the arcane, the occult. And uh, we can see this throughout history, from highly publicised witchcraft trials, to pop culture of the day, to pop culture of today, or, you know, the 80s. Um, and this is because magic is present in almost all times and periods and places around the world. This topic is so immense, I'm going to be doing a bit of jumping from place to place and discuss some of the bits that I find most interesting. And on that note, this is Baba Yaga, who will never be brought up in this talk, but uh, she is a Russian witch who hops around in this rather fabulous washing tub. So um, we need to start at the beginning, I think. It's the most important place, after all. So more than any other time, why are the 15 and 1600s the most see the most, why do they see the most concentration of witchcraft activity? Why are there more hunt, witch hunts in this time period than any others? So the reasons most often cited are poor crops, continuously, war, warfare is raging at the time, and religion. However, these all exist before and after, so why are they so severe at this point? I have one answer for you. The plague! <laughs> uh, which has never been said with such a happy voice. Um, so this is a disease that spreads super, super quickly, and it kills even quicker, and that's only if you're lucky. So there's three types of plague. You've got the bubonic, pneumonic, and septicemic, which I'm sure you all know already. <laughs> um, and so septicemic, for example, gives you almost no indication that you're sick before you fall down dead. There's literally stories of people giving a week off in church and just hitting the deck. So can you imagine that? It's happening all around you. <laughs> Why is anyone laughing at that? Like, what's wrong with you? So it's happening all around you. You've got friends, neighbours, family all dying, and your villages and towns are being halved in population. Sorry, it's really hot in here. So I'm thinking you'd be a little on edge too. So with sickness rampaging throughout society, killing seemingly indiscriminately, it took a huge toll on the European psyche, and the reappearance of the plague year after year create a huge amount of motivation to create scapegoats and you don't need to look much farther than just to find a witch. So the fear of witches is the fear of the devil gaining entrance into your society and because of the witch and then God abandoning you all because of her, usually her. Um, so what feels more like God abandoning you than literally everybody you know dying? So. The Pick Plague depopulation causes a huge chain of social and economic events that destabilises Europe and leads to a huge number of permanent changes. And while these are super interesting, and I'm sure you all care deeply about them, really the most important one right now is that there's fewer people, and that means there's more labour needed, and then wages rise, and this puts a huge shift in power towards the peasants. And so in this kind of climate, it's argued that older people are no longer considered that useful because they can't do labour. Therefore, they're pushed out onto the edges of society, they're pushed out onto the edges of town. You get a, a rise in the idea of a nuclear family and less of this large family unit. 
And so now they are on their own and they have to rely on the charity of others to survive. Older women, especially widows, because women do tend to live longer, um, kind of <coughs> changes its... They kind of challenge a societal norm of women having to be reliant on men. So widows can own property and they can earn their own living. So it's been argued that that traditional shift in balance is what caused them to be the focus of the witch trials in Europe. But we will discuss that more later. So the elderly living on their own, often like this, are more likely to suffer from mental illnesses like Alzheimer's or paraphrenia, which is just like schizophrenia but occurs in the over 60s. And so this can make them seem different or other or alien. So the alienation of these people um, between them and the town would make them seem a bit suspicious and a bit creepy. And then they come to ask you for charity. You say no. They mutter a bit. Your cow dies. So who are you going to blame? Is it going to be sickness or just the witch? You're going to go the witch. So more recently and more recently, diseases have been blamed for some of the accusations and even confessions of witchcraft. As I mentioned earlier, we have paraphrenia, which causes delusions involving individuals being the subject of persecution. However, there is no significant deterioration in personality, habits, or intelligence, which means people can look exactly how they always had, but they're actually having severe paranoid delusions at the time. So Valletta describes it as having increased suspiciousness, irritability, and hostile attitude towards others. I'm pretty sure I have paraphrenia. Um, and so then this is followed swiftly by the patient complaining of being under hostile scrutiny by neighbours, and commonly for the patients to experience imagined sexual assaults, often by occult means, but by their ordinary acquaintances. Also, I really like the sexy devil. I don't know why they made him so buff, but he is. Um, so, <laughs> however, I do think that uh, diagnosing people some 400 years after the fact and after they're dead is a bit impossible. That's just my personal opinion on that. Uh, but it does raise some interesting questions. So with the devil being so ubiquitous throughout society at this point, it does make sense that he does appear, she, I don't know, sexy devil, appears a lot in all of the delusions. So many healthy people were also accused and confessed to witchcraft. So why would you do that? Why would you confess to, you know, communing with the devil, plotting to kill a king, poisoning wells, you know, stealing penises, which is another great crime, <laughs> if you didn't? Well, first of, first of all, uh, torture would be a big, big main one. So torture techniques are used a lot at this point, and you'll say anything to make it stop. And then you're also deprived of food, water, and sleep, which, let's face it, is just another form of torture. So this happens until you confess. And with the lack of sleep and leading questioning, you can make some really outlandish confessions that then your captors are going to choose to believe to be true because it's way more fun than just finding out the truth. So I also believe, however, that blaming it solely on torture techniques does take away all accountability and agency away from the accused. So, interestingly, we do find people admitting to having communed with the devil, having a pact with Satan, etc., for other reasons, especially when they're not even under torture. So, I think attention, becoming famous or infamous, um, or more likely, is just attract customers to your business. So, if you're a healer or a fortune teller, what's better than saying you've got Satan on your side? So that was a very brief background, and I will not pretend it's comprehensive, but I just want to move on to the cases, which are just super fun. Uh, let's start with Berwick, which is one of my favourites. Um, so at this point, you've got to remember, Berwick is technically in Scotland. So, uh, and it still is in my heart. Uh, so the Berwick witch trials of 1598 are some of the most famous in the world, and they all start with this poor woman, Gilas Duncan. And she's accused of curing the sick, which of course is a terrible crime. Uh, her employer then takes it upon himself to commit her to a bit of, and I quote, light torture, which uh, include this, which is very cutely named Pillywinks. We call them thumbscrews generally. Um, and of course, under this light torture, Gillis does admit to having uh, been a witch communing with the devil. And she also names a lot of other witches, including one Dr. John Fane and Agnes Sampson. Poor sweet Agnes is an elderly woman and she does deny all 53 indictments of witchcraft against her. But then she's subjected to um, a bit of mistreatment. She gets physical torture from the branks. So the, this has a metal bar that goes inside your mouth and it can be tightened. 
Uh, she's starved, she's humiliated, <coughs> it includes being completely stripped in front of the whole town, shaved and pricked all over to find the devil's mark. And then eventually, you know, after just a little bit of light torture, again, she confesses to being in attendance at a Sabbath at um, St Andrew's Ald Kirk in North Berwick. She then also says that there are another 200 witches in attendance, which is quite a lot of people to get in a very small church. Um, it, this includes uh, Dr. John Fane, name dropped again, Gilas Duncan, and, of all people, Francis Stewart, the fifth Earl of Bothwell. Uh, so for her crimes, she is strangled and burned. So this is actually the customary death for witches in Scotland, where it is illegal to burn someone alive. Not to strangle them first, though. <laughs> So this educational pamphlet is uh, actually published at the time in association with the witch trials, and it's called The News from Scotland, and I also like how they spelt news. Um, and so this details a lot of the, um, the account, and so it discusses the alleged witches' activities, it discusses um, how they were captured, how they were um, questioned, if we're going to put it lightly, and it also describes the death of Archibald Douglas, 8th Earl of Angus, who, and I quote, was said to have been bewitched to death with a disease so strange his physician could find no cure or remedy. Which means he probably had a cold. Um, <laughs> so, this leads up until the eventual apprehension of poor Dr. John Fame. Who's this guy who keeps lying around? Like, I think they just have He never seems to stand up in any of the images. Yeah, she's on a horse later. You'll spot him later on a horse. Um, and so he is apparently declared a notable sorcerer and under compact with the devil and supposed head of this coven because smash the matriarchy. So we've got a man in, a man in charge and this is de the devil with his nice little claws. So Dr. John Fane decided to stand up eventually uh, when he got captured. This is him bewitching a cow, which is one of his crimes. <laughs> and this is him on a horse, by the way. This just He just does the most bizarre things in this pamphlet. It's good fun. Um, so during his examination, he confessed to be the register of witches, because you have to take the register. Everybody knows this. He's under the service of Satan. And after his confession, however, he does renounce his compact with the devil. And he swears to live an honourable Christian life. And that night in his lovely, lovely, lovely cell, uh, Satan comes to him and tries to convince him to uphold his original pact. And he renounces st Satan straight to his face. Then the next day, after his busy, busy night, um, one of the jailers comes to his cell and he manages to steal the keys and then he escapes. So he's, he's on the run and then he's swiftly recaptured. That's actually what's happening here is he's being recaptured by I do not know who, just whatever that's supposed to be. Um, and so after he's recaptured, they're like, right, we're done with your lion, we're gonna have to torture you. And so they use, again, I love the names, they use very coy names, this is the boot. <laughs> so this clamps around your shin, and what they do is there's it's oh everybody's gasping it's it's loose to begin with <laughs> and then they put a nice block of wood down the front which they then hammer in which will crush all the bones in your leg and then he supposedly escapes again which is when he's supposed to be on this horse so i'm very confused as to how he's on a horse with a crushed leg but who are we to deny the witchcraft <laughs> so it's he also gets the pilly winks again my favorite and has all of his fingernails forcibly extracted um, so from this trial, I like how you gasped at that one, but not these. <laughs> um, so from this trial, it's actually that we get a lot of the ideas of witchcraft, and this is they spread from this and the news from Scotland pamphlet all around the UK and Europe, and it's this. Uh, it's one of the idea. This is where the idea of um, the witches sailing to the Kirk in their sieves. Um, they kiss the deal's arse, which is another great image. Um, they plotted and cursed to kill the king which is King James VI of Scotland and first of England. And this is why, this is why he gets really mad and writes his treatise on witchcraft, which is called The Demonology, which is brilliant. And we will get onto later again. And this is where he becomes, starts to become obsessed with the ideas of a witches plotting to kill him. And so although these trials are like visceral and salacious and really well documented, they're not the last. So I think we should take a little bit closer to ourselves and go to Pendle Hill. So, in August 1612, 10 people are executed on the moors above Lancaster. They're found guilty of witchcraft in Lancaster Castle the same day. They didn't hang about when hanging these women. Um, so, almost all of the defendants come from these two families. 
Um, and this, I don't know, might be a slight indication that it's just two families hating each other than, you know, any desire to rid the world of witches. But um, their crimes uh, include um, <coughs> causing madness, making clay images, and it really is listed last, uh, murdering 16 people. <laughs> um, and so this evidence is slightly iffy at best, and the murders are supposed to have taken been done over the last 16 years so I'm going to be honest the memories cannot be that brilliant and so the head of these two families um, have great names you've got Elizabeth Southern uh, they're both in their 80s by the way so you've got Elizabeth Southern who's known as Old Demdike and Anne Whittle who's known as Old Chattox and I just I just wouldn't be happy with either of those names um, and why they probably hate each other is because they're actually both rival wise women and healers and they both at various points as mentioned earlier claim to be in compact with Satan to get more business to drum up a bit of business good marketing scheme I might go for it myself um, so the, the spark that ignited this kind of powder keg going on uh, took place on the 18th of March 1612 when one of Demdike's granddaughters Alison Device over there spelled with a Z by the way which I think is quite fun she's out begging and she encounters a peddler and she asks him for some pins and he says no get away and uh, she curses him because that's what you do. Um, and she does it with her familiar spirit that apparently appears in front of her in the form of a black dog. And so the matter is then brought to the, uh, sorry, brought to the attention of the local magistrate. Poor Alison is arrested and she confesses what she's done, which is, you know, curse a peddler and murder 16 people. Um, and then implicates the Whittle family and her own. And so the trials begin on the 18th of August um, and both families start accusing each other and the key piece of evidence that gets everybody convicted is given by another one of old them, like granddaughters, Janet Device, and she is nine. Like, why does anybody trust her? So um, then, there, then uh, 10 people are hung, which is on the word of a nine-year-old, which is a bit disturbing. So I think it's important to emphasize that the the evidence that people are convicted upon is shaky at best and then it is pretty terrible the rest of the time so it's torture it's years old memories it's family feuds and it's a nine-year-old <laughs> uh so now we've been to britain let's go elsewhere i uh so, yeah, other countries have marched first off uh so now we look at some now we've had a look at these which people might be familiar with and i'm sure we'll all be familiar with this next one so see is it is in fact Thanksgiving, and seeing as we do have some American guests, I think it's important to talk about Salem and how, how fun it is. So um, Salem's one of the most well-known witch trials, everybody knows about it, um, so I'm not going to spend too much time telling you about it, but I think the atmosphere in Salem is one of the most important things about it. So at this time, um, Salem is massively strained, they've actually had a huge new influx of people. Um, so the, the resources are being stretched. There are there's war going on between wait Britain and France. I think Britain and France at this time straining resources further. You then also have had a recent outbreak of smallpox in this area, and they're under constant fear of Native Americans. Therefore, they've got hostility coming from inside and outside. This is kind of a, a, a powder keg in a puritanical society which in which they lived in. So they've already got a fear of outsiders and now they've got to fear their neighbours as well. So, in 1692, sweet, sweet Betty Paris, who's a terrible person, and sweet, sweet Abigail Williams, who's equally terrible, start having fits. Um, and they are violent contortions and uncontrollable outbursts of screaming, which just sounds like being a teenager, but that's fine. And then William Griggs, a local doctor, diagnoses them with bewitchment, which is, I mean, we've all been to the doctor and had that, right? Um, and so the younger other girls in the community start also getting these similar symptoms. And I'm sure people will question whether this is ergot poisoning, which is the current running theory that they were poisoned by manky bread or monkey wheat I know they're all insane and that's why this happened but again I don't think diagnosing people 400 years after the fact is something I can do but it's an interesting idea as to why these things come about so um, once they start with their insanity they start blaming some people and they blame Tichaba which is the Paris's Caribbean slave they blame Sarah Good who is a homeless beggar and they blame Sarah Osborne an elderly widow, all of being witches. 
I'm casting bewitchment upon them. Please notice again that these are all outsiders. You've got a slave, you've got a beggar, and you've got a widow. These are all people who are not part of societal norms. And so Good and Osborne just deny their accusations, but Tichaba just goes all in. She just confesses, just blames other people. It's brilliant, actually. Um, and from here, the fear and accusations just spread like wildfire. 19 people end up being hanged on Gallows Hill. Seven accused of witchcraft end up dying in jail. <laughs> the saddest part, well, it's maybe not the saddest part because 19 people died, but I feel quite bad for poor Giles Corey, who is the only person to have ever died this way in a witchcraft trial, but he refused to plead guilty or innocent because to do so would have either caused a trial or have him lie. And so either way, his lands would have been taken off him. So to persuade him to confess, they pressed him. This is his head, these are his arms, this is his body between two boards. And so what they did for two whole days was put weight on him again and again, asking him to plead guilty or innocent. And every time they asked him, he said the most badass thing in the world and went, more weight. (laughs) And uh, that's how he died, so. You know, uh, so this is actually the trial that led to spectral evidence not being allowed to be used in court, (laughs) which is another just great fact. Uh, So Germany is weirder again and great fun. So Germany has a bit of a different take. Um, The accused have to pay for their trial, they have to pay for their imprisonment, and then they have to pay for their own execution. And then, if anything's left over, it gets split between the church and the judge. And so, as you can imagine... Quite a lot of wealthy people and um, aristocracy were accused of witchcraft and killed. And many, many judges got very, very rich. And after one became so rich that people started accusing him of witchcraft, it um, was just great fun. Um, It got largely discontinued. Um, It also has some of the best court transcripts that get like really racy at times. They're great fun if anybody ever is bored. Uh, Portugal also exploit it for a different reason. Also, please note, also notice all the demons that are coming out of this, I, I, I don't know, whatever this is. It's, so this is um, a med, part of a medical transcript from Portugal. And so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Portugal used witch hunts for their own means. They did it... Um, to get people to use doctors, but because this is one of, a picture from a doctor's book, I wouldn't be going to this doctor either. <laughs> He's definitely taking someone's eye out. I just can't deal with it. Um, so peasantry were more likely to use healers from their own class than doctors because doctors are hugely expensive because you have to pay for God knows what kit this is. And um, so the doctors really, really wanted rid of folk medicine. So what they did was they persecuted folk medicine as though it was witchcraft. But in Portugal, you don't die because of witchcraft. Well, I mean, you don't get sentenced to death because of witchcraft. You uh, just got exiled for 10 years, which is not too bad, um, really. Um, But the doctors were actually so successful that there were almost no folk healers left after 10 years, which is quite good. But then they can start coming back again, I suppose. But, you know. Uh, Iceland, one of my favourites. So they use runes written down in various forms. You know, Latin is the big one for uh, European countries. Iceland uses runes, and it's a cast spell. So this one on the right, so you carve these staves on a piece of wood, and if you put it under a girl's head, she'll fall in love with you. Don't know how you get it under her head, but you're doing it. And then this other one, a little bit more sinister, uh, this should be carved on a killing oak, and then burned, and then you give it in medicine to someone when you wish them evil. And as they drink it, you are to say what you desire. But to be honest, if somebody's whispering at you as you drink, like, it's a bit creepy. So... In Iceland, actually, um, more men than women were accused of witchcraft and therefore more were found guilty. So out of the 21 executions by burning that are recorded, 20 of them are men and only one of them is women. This is likely to do with land, though, because Icelanders were able to purchase the land of somebody who'd been burnt burnt for a witch really cheaply after the trial so it's a great incentive to just like accuse your neighbor of stuff and so iceland always also has a really mixed heritage when it comes to their history um so their witchcraft trials actually come to at the end of the craze in the rest of europe and uh, their beliefs are heavily mixed up with norse mythology and germanic traditions so it's just very strange compared to the rest of the world and actually the best fun out of any of them uh russia also bizarre things going on, uh, also had a higher number of men accused of witchcraft than women. Around three quarters of the accused are men, and it's postulated that because Russian orthodoxy doesn't actually 
link Eve or her daughters with sexual desire, nor do they link sex with Satan. The the, the, the treaties Malleus Maleficarum, which we'll get onto, don't you worry, um, didn't hold as much sway here as it does in the rest of Europe. So it prevented women being the sole focus of the trials, unlike in the rest of Europe where women are just evil. <laughs> so um, lastly, women also have a bit of protection, which is what this image is, by the way, um, at home because they have less of a chance to clash with clergymen and the powerful people, and therefore they're less likely to receive accusations as um, retaliation. Um, also, Satan isn't actually a huge part of witchcraft in Russia. Uh, the de- where devils and demons are mentioned, they're usually subservient to the witch, not evil or the embodiment of evil so uh, this means magic is actually quite a natural thing there and it's not so much it's more the outcome of the magic than the source of it that's the problem bless you uh so now we're going on to what i in my opinion think is the best bit okay so we've got the tangible evidence of witchcraft and charms and so i like to think of these in a few different categories you get books you get sympathetic magic misplaced object and creative charms and we will go through these. So with books, you get one of the best bit, and two, you get them in two different categories. You get them in treatises against witchcraft, and you get them as grimoires, which is a how-to guide. So, Malleus Maleficarum, I'm sure you're all waiting for bait for breath for this. So this translates to the not very subtle or ambiguous title of Hammer of the Witches. And it's written by Catholic clergyman Henry Kramer and Jacob Sprenger, and it's first published in 1487. It lays out a legal and theoretical framework for the extermination of witches. Uh, fun fact, it was actually the second most popular book just behind the Bible for around 200 years. Everyone's got one of these at home, right? Um, so it's a damning book, actually, and it elevates the crime of witchcraft to that of heresy, which means uh, the execution method should be by burning alive at the stake. And it also encourages uh, torture and deception as means to get a confession. So it's divided into the three main elements needed for witchcraft. You've got the evil intentions of the witch, the help of the devil, and the permission of God, which I quite like as a final one. So the first section is aimed to the clergy and tries to refute critics who try to deny the existence of witchcraft and thereby hindering its prosecution. You've got a second form that actually describes the forms of witchcraft and its remedies. Once again, really weird devils. That first that first woodcut was from the Malleus as well. There's just weird stuff going on. Um, the third section is to assist judges in confronting and combating witchcraft and is to aid the inquisitors. Each of these sections all have prevailing themes on what is witchcraft and who is a witch. The Malleus is very specific that women are more likely to commit witchcraft, as they are the sex that the devil has more control over, as we all know. Um, So he's also very clear on the dualities of gender with positive and negatives, and women are just the negative of men, which is just terrible. Uh, So Kramer basically believes that women by nature are evil. And he does note and emphasize all sorts of weird sexual stuff. He does does emphasize a lot of weird sexual stuff in the books. And um, he's actually kicked out of court numerous times in the past for doing so during trial. They had to forcibly remove him for being so weird that they made him leave. So this book is actually so hugely and widely used throughout Europe, and it can be seen as the reason that so many women were put to death for witchcraft. Um, and so, for example, as I've said, Russia and Iceland actually don't use the Malleus Maleficarum, and as we've discussed already, predominantly male, uh, predominantly males were accused and then killed for witchcraft. So the other main treaties on witchcraft, also I love this picture of James, Uh, the other main treaties on uh, witchcraft was the demonology, again spelt brilliantly. So this is by our very own Jimmy, Um, and he does this right after the Bedwick Witch Trials in 1597, so seven years later he's gotten himself quite a good, it's it's a hefty tome of a book. And so it's a philosophical discussion on the contemporary necromancy and historical relationships between the various methods of divination used from ancient black magic. That's basically his blurb for it. Um, and so it's actually, it's a study on demonology and the methods used to trouble men and touches on topics like werewolves and vampires. And it's a <laughs> great read, actually. Uh, it's a pl- political and theological discussion educa- to educate the misinformed populace all about, the, um, all about the witches and how to persecute them in a Christian society. 
So this book is believed to be one of the primary sources for William Shakespeare's Macbeth, actually, and for him using witches in it. So it acts as a theological discussion, as I've said, and it's in the form of a philosophical debate between two characters, and they're like the worst named characters ever. You've got Philomathes and Epitamon, so if anybody speaks Latin, I'm sure you all do. Um, you'll know that Philomath means a lover of learning and studying, and is the student in our story, and epistemic means knowledge and or understanding and he is the teacher and so they have a debate on various topics in magic and sorcery and so it's divided into these three fun books so the first book up here uh looks at the scriptures of magic including charms conjurations necromancy and the devil's contract with man I like that, like they both had to sign it and it had to be like witnessed. Um, book two has topics on the description of sorcery, its comparison with witchcraft and the path of sorcerer's apprentice, the appearance of devils and the times and forms they might appear. Uh, book three is the conclusion and here James uh, provides a good description of all kinds of spirits and spectres that trouble men and women. And so now the better bit is grimoires. So these are the how-to guide. So they're textbooks of magic and they include on how to create magical objects, potions, charms. They teach you how to perform magical spells and divination. They also teach you how to summon and invoke supernatural entities like spirits. They include angels for some reason, uh, demons, and some of them are actually believed to be imbued with magical power. And so originally the word grimoire comes from Old French, which actually just refers to old any book written in Latin. And so I've said before, Latin is the language of magic in Europe, and it's probably because it is a dead language, it sounds sounds good, let's face it. And then um, it's also the language of the Bible, and a lot of witchcraft is about turning the Bible on its head. So my favourite one is the Voynich Manuscript. And so this is considered to be one of the most mysterious manuscripts, and as of this afternoon when I did double-check that it still was unciphered, nobody actually knows what it says. So it is an, uh, it's written on vellum. It depicts these kind of bizarre plants that nobody really thinks exist. They've got some great astrological charts, like the kind of zodiac-like, but not quite. And it's got these little people in bathtubs. <laughs> and I just, I'm not really sure what's going on, but I quite like them anyway. Um, and so cryptographers, which is a great word, uh, mathematicians and linguists have never been able to decipher this book. And so despite its arcane nature, actually scholars maintain it was written in the medieval period, which is pretty impressive, I think. We also have the Munich Manual of Demonic Magic, which, again, brilliant <laughs> drawings. And so this is a necromancer's, it's also known as the Necromancer's Manual, and it's a recipe book from the 15th century, and it's from a German magician who is well known, apparently, for summoning demonic spirits. Probably like whatever this is. <laughs> um, the manual contains three major kinds of magic found in grimoires. You've got illusionist, uh, illusionist, psychological, and divination. So illusionist spells are meant to make people see things like uh, castles or armies. You've got psychological spells to leverage emotional or political power over people. Um, and then you've got divination actions, which obviously um, are made to help you extract information from the future or past. And so it also contains passages that describe um, sacrificing mythological creatures, like what if this poor guy is? And I just feel really bad for him, actually. Um, and then we also have the Red Dragon or the Grand Grimoire, which is, again, just ev everything about these is super odd. <laughs> Who even knows what's happening? I do like his saddle, though. I think that's great. Um, so this is also called the Gospel of Satan and was found in the tomb of Solomon in 1750 and is either written in uh, Biblical Hebrew or Aramaic. And so the legend of this book is that it was based upon the, the writings of the apocryphal Honoris of Thebes, um, who claimed to be possessed by Satan. And so the book is said to be uh, proof, had to contain proof of demonic evocation and occult spells, which is what I imagine is happening there. <laughs> um, unsurprisingly, it's actually still used in voodoo, and the book is said to be impervious to fire, which I think is nice. <laughs> So next, we're going to go on to some actual magic. Um, and so, as, men as mentioned from the grimoires, we do have sympathetic magic. And so this is probably one of the most common types. Um, and it's most socially accepted as well. So it works on uh, an imitation or similarity basis. This means that 
like cures or causes like. For example, you can put these mole's feet around your neck. It's not only slightly creepy, it will also cure your rheumatism apparently because they look like little cramped hands. So it's the idea that the cramped hands will prevent your hands being cramped. You can carry a walnut around in your pocket or eat it to become smarter. Not really sure that's true, but I'm going with it. It also works on animals apparently. We have this lovely little fish lead weight from Scarborough and you would put it on your fishing net and then all the little fishies would go into your net. So it was meant to attract them. However, it's not always used in a good way. We also have this, which is a witch's ladder. And so what you have to do is tie 40 knots in the, an accord with a fierce concentration of fierce hatred. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like they have to have it um, against the victim. And as you knot these knots, they will uh, choke to death and die. However, you should hide your cord because if they find it before they choke to death and die and they undo the knots, they will not die. So, you know, easy done. You win some, you lose some. So I'm sure you all know of this sympathetic magic. So voodoo dolls or puppets are, or are actually types of fetish which um, are used to create a link between a living being and an inanimate object. So whatever happens, so... Apparently, the more closely it resembles the person, the better it is. And even if you have a piece of a person like their hair, it'll make the link stronger. This is actually called the law of similarity or the law of contagion. So it does look like it has a big pin in its face, which means the person would feel a big, sharp stab in their face. Uh, not very subtle, I don't think. Um, so the other type of magic um, is kind of this misplaced objects. And so this isn't one that you'll find in a grimoire. This is more of a Leanne category. Um, these are objects and I like to think of them as accidental time travellers so you get them removed from their original time or context and now they're weird they don't make sense so this is where you get things like elf arrows and crystal balls so elf arrows I do love these so these are actually cured to both used to both cure and cause sickness so everyone in the room recognises it well all the archaeologists do uh, it's a neolithic arrowhead probably Neolithic, and they turn up all the time. They're churned up by digging soil, they're turned up by walking on soggy ground, and cow's hooves turn, turn them up. So, it's quite understandable that, uh, well, I mean, sort of understandable, that uh, your cow goes lame, you find one of these by its feet, what are you going to do? You're going to blame the cow falling in some mud, or you're going to blame a witch? You're going to blame a witch. So, you, you know all about elves causing mischief and they f shoot their arrows at your cows just to hurt them or witches also shoot the, the magical arrows out of their thumbnails and hurt your cows. I don't know why they hate cows so much. I, it just happens. So um, it's often commented that they're never there when you look for them, but they'll turn up in the most unlikely of locations. My two favourite locations from research are turning up in the riding boot of a Scottish geographer while while riding a horse and the other was in the bodice of a young lady's dress why were you looking in there for it so in 1590 Catherine Ross who is Lady Fowlis who is, is accused of witchcraft and was said to have attempted to kill her husband's relatives by making clay images of them and flicking these small arrows out of her nails and Isabel Gowdy who is also from uh, the Pendle Hill Trials um, admits to using elf arrows given to her by the devil shaped by his own hands and so she shoots them by flicking them out of her thumbnails which I'm not I try, I really did try to work out how that works and then there's more evidence from the 1890s we're getting more recent and they're still being used so no, there's an article from the 1890s that details what knowing women uh oh I'm sorry I spent too long talking about my elf arrows so um, this, this next slide is for someone very particular. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so elf arrows, um, she, it is discussed in this, this very nice article that, um, the cow, when sick, when it was struck by an elf arrow, very specifically sick, it would look languid, breathe hard, and refuse its food and look sad. <laughs> These aren't sad cows, luckily. So, um, the knowing woman would then feel it all over which is a bit weird, but, and she would note holes in the cow, but not in the skin, but in the muscle and underneath. And then, once she'd found these holes, she would rub it all over with salt and water, and uh, then she would put 
two spoonfuls of salt in half a pint of whiskey with a pint of water. She'd pour a little bit in its ears and the rest down its throat. And it is, it is noted that all of the cows recovered. <laughs> so you laugh, you laugh, but it, it, it worked. Uh, so some Scottish elf arrows were even actually mounted in silver and worn around the neck. It's possibly that this charm was used to prevent witchcraft, actually, um, for the people themselves and their cows, which I like. Why not put it around the cow? But okay. Uh, rock crystal balls are actually another another really common artifact that come up is one of these time travelers. So I think it's because they look so different. So you get these Anglo-Saxon rock crystal balls, which are probably worn as personal adornment. And so this is the one that we've got on display in Western Park and you'll see this little hole in it, which is where the attachment would have been. This is how we know that they're Anglo-Saxon rock crystal balls, not just very nicely shaped natural stone. Um, so um, it's, it's well known that they are used to People used to put the stones in water and then sprinkle their cows on May Day to make sure that they did not get elf-struck or bewitched. This one has a bit more of an auspicious past. This is the, oh, I'm going to butcher it, Klachnebracht stone, or the stone of standard, which was discovered on the morning of the Battle of Bannockburn. It was stated that as the standard was pulled from the ground, the stone just popped up. That was it. It just appeared. And um, he probably just stuck his standard right through somebody's body as well. It's the worst part. Um, so this rock crystal just appeared and the chief showed it to his followers and said, I feel that this brilliant light is an omen of good things to come. And it told of victory in the upcoming battle, which we all know it did. <laughs> and one last example. It's probably my favourite because it goes to Australia and never comes back. Um... This is the Kepok stain, which is apparently cures diseases. No specific disease, just all of them. <laughs> um, and it's supposed, and it, is, it was in the possession of one Angus Macdonald in 1854. Goes to Australia and then takes it with him, and it is still there. Um, and the charm was to be dipped into water, and this was to be said above it. Let me dip thee in the water, thou yellow, beautiful gem of power. In water of purest wave, which St. Bridget did not permit to be contaminated. In the name of the Apostles Twelve, in the name of Mary, Virgin of Virtues, and the name of the High Trinity, and all the shining angels, blessing on the gem, blessing on the water, and healing of a bodily ailment to each suffering creature, to literally everything. <laughs> so, um, it is, you are supposed to dip it in a very, very specific well, but he took it to Australia, so presumably it no longer works. I'm not really sure. But it is a good example of how they are mixing the pagan use of stones like this and Christian ideals of the time. So you're hearing the blessing of the Apostles 12. You're hearing the blessing of Mary, Virgin of Virtues. But you're also hearing about St. Bridget, which is actually Bridget. It is the Celtic goddess who was just quietly adopted by the Christians when they were making the transition into Christianity up north. But she is associated with fertility and healing, also poetry and smithcraft, but you know. Um, and this would explain why she's involved in this healing spell. So, one final one, I promise. Uh, created charms. These are where things get like super weird and super fun. If you thought it was weird up till this point, don't you, don't you worry. So these are, uh, amber has like literally always been seen and still is kind of seen as an amulet for people. So it was, it's often worn by children. And even in the Roman times, it was worn by children as a amulet against poisoning and Pliny, because we all know he's got good medical advice. <laughs> uh, he said it was good at all ages, taken both as a powder or worn around the neck as protection against insanity. <laughs> uh, apparently he didn't use it. Uh, <laughs> So amber is also particularly prized among East Coast fishermen. In Scotland, that is. You'll notice all of this is Scotland. I'm just a bit biased. Um, as a talisman against evil, there is an old rhyme that says um, amber possesses the power to drive away witches. So these four beads are actually presented to the National Museum of Scotland by the McDonald's of Glencoe. And these are not only a cure, um, a keep witches away from you, they're also a cure for blindness. Like, I love the multi-use of everything. Another tale we have is of this very lovely amber bead, and it was worn around a gentleman's neck, so it was um, the father of Mrs. Shaw of Galloway, and he was an extremely lucky man, and he claimed all of his luck came from this bead. So he was a smuggler, and uh, his stash was never found, he was never caught, he, he said it was the bead. 
Um, he used the bead to cure elf-struck cows and sick kids. Again, said in that order, like cows are more important. <laughs> and he, um, but then one day he loses the bead when gardening. Uh, and then all of his luck leaves him. His cargoes were lost, his hiding place betrayed, and he died alone and in poverty. But then, uh, it's okay, the story gets better. Uh, the bead is found again, but they're not sure if any luck returns with it. So they try to use it to cure their sick cat, and then the cat dies. So they do decide that there is no magic left in the amber bead. Um, I've got one very sad face looking at me now. Um, another form of Another common form of um, created charm is the written charm. So these are made these are made to cure a whole number of ailments. So this one specifically is from Kate McCaldy, professional witch. Um, and she lives in Russia, and this was for uh, written for toothache. So it reads, it's really faded, but it does read, Peter was laying with his head upon a marble stone and weeping, and Christ came by and said, What ails thou, Peter? And Peter answered, Oh Lord, my tooth. Uh, that, that's just it he just says my tooth and he goes raise now Peter and be healed whatsoever shall carry whomsoever shall carry these lines in my name shall never feel toothache Kate McCaldy so there's a lot of spelling mistakes including tooth being spelled T-W-O-T-H and Peter spelled P-E-T-T-E-R Peter um, anyway uh, the paper is then the paper should then be folded eight times and worn in a silk bag around your neck um, for at least a year um, and this was actually owned by a shepherd who paid half a crown for this but if you notice again we've got the mixture between witchcraft and Christianity abutting each other it's like you know if one doesn't work maybe the other will and so this looks super super gross this is actually a calf's heart and it was found under the floor in a house in Dalkeith in 1812 and so the building was undergoing repairs and they knew that the building used to be a church and they went, well, that's a bit weird to find under a church. But then they found out prior to that, in about 1750, it'd been owned by a couple who had a lot of cows. And so somebody who'd been around at that point said there was sickness going through the cow, the cattle at that in, in about 1750 and um, the people who owned the house had a particularly bad time of it. And so... It wasn't uncommon at the time for the people who had calamities befall their cattle to do this charm. And so what you do is you take a heart of a calf that you've slaughtered specifically for this and you pop it in front of the fire and you roast it and for every single turn you put a copper pin through the heart. And you do this until the heart is completely roasted and this will cause the witch who is bewitched your cattle to feel the exact same pain. You know, just your standard revenge. <laughs> um, and so now I'm going to take us back to Iceland because as I've said it is the best place uh, these are Tillabri and these um, uh, this is a, a worm and it is made from the rib of a recently buried man and some stolen sheep's wool and this is to be fed on communion wine for three consecutive Sundays <laughs> while hiding between the breasts of a woman. Uh, and once it's big enough, it will venture out and steal milk and wool for you in exchange for just a little bit of human blood. <laughs> and so this last and best object, so this is, in my humble and correct opinion, this is the, the last object is the best. Um, if you are delicate of heart, please look away. Uh, I will leave you a lasting impression, though. These are necropants. <laughs> um, so this horrifying piece of 17th century witchcraft has, according to the museum, never actually been practised. However, they did make this disgusting replica. Um, Oh, that's not, is that a replica? That's what, it's, a oh. it's never been made. Are you even listening? It's never been made. <laughs> They're just a gross replica. Um, so to, you, I'm going to tell you all how to make it, though, don't you worry. Uh, to make this very nice, it's a money-spitting spell, just, just in case you were wondering. Um, you only, this is all you need to do, you only need to secure the permission from a friend to skin them when they die. You let them die first. It's only polite. You then need to steal a coin from a poor widow, Write the correct stave, which is those kind of line things, on a bit of vellum, and then you pop that coin and vellum into the scrotum. You're then going to pull on your grizzly hose, and they're going to adhere to your skin, and then you're never going to want for money again. 
Also, you can pass this off to friends. If you uh, get out with them before you die, they can step in, but they have to have one leg in as you have one leg out. So it's kind of a, <laughs> a bit of a Chuckle Brothers affair, but it would probably be worth it. So that was quite a whirlwind adventure of witchcraft. Um, but ultimately, I'd like to point out that witchcraft is um, a way of bestowing reason on an unreasonable world. It's a way of understanding and giving meaning to the chaotic and scary world around you. It's a way to lay blame of an unfair life at anybody else's door, apparently. Um, and it gives you power of your life and the lives of others. So the belief in the occult is a little less prevalent today. This is also in the Museum of Iceland, by the way. This is, it's a nightmarish place. Um, so the belief in the occult and the strange is a little less prevalent today than it is, as is in the past. But uh, we have a greater understanding of the world around us. We know that germs cause sickness. We know that crops die. Um, and we know that bad luck sometimes hits us all. So that makes it hard for us to see how it was. So thank you to you all for like suspending your disbelief for just a little bit and taking that weird walk with me through our witchcraft. So... Again, I'm just going to leave you with this. <laughs> so if anybody has any questions or thoughts or comments, thank you. Thank you for listening to Archaeology and Ale. For more information about our podcast and guest speaker, please see the show notes that accompany this recording. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, or Twitter. And if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. See you next time! This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.